Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast. I am joined in the studio today, as always, with my co-host, Mr. Angelo Keeley. What's up, my people? <laughs> and uh, we are also here with Angela Bryan, who we're, we're very excited to have here in the studio today. She's gonna, we're going to talk about exercise and the effect of exercise on mental health, talk about different motivating factors. Angela uh, has a wonderful, she works at the University of Colorado right now, right, Angela? Mm-hmm. Uh, via uh, UCLA, where she received her bachelor's degree in psychology. She received her master's degree in social psychology with a quantitative emphasis from Arizona State University, and her PhD in social psychology uh, with quantitative emphasis from Arizona State University. And as I mentioned, is currently working at the University of Colorado, where she is co-director of CU Change Lab and the professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder and has a primary affiliation in social psychology program and a second affiliation in the clinical psychology program at UCB. Finally, she holds a position as professor of transitional neuroscience at the Mind Research Network. Angela, really an honor to have you in the studio today. Thanks oh. for making the time. Thanks so much. It's fun to be here. Yeah. So, wow. So you are a very accomplished person. You have studied quite a bit. You've, you have cross-disciplinary things going on. We could focus, as we were talking about before the show, in a lot of different areas. But for the focus of today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about exercise. Great. What have you, what for you as a researcher and someone who's been studying this for a while, what is the most profound thing that you've learned about exercise and the way it affects mental health? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll I'll start with sort of a personal experience. Um, When I first got interested in physical activity, and, and it started when I started engaging in physical activity myself. And uh, I I wasn't very active. I wasn't in good shape. And for a number of reasons, I started running. And I noticed that, you know, not long after I started running, got a little bit better at it. I I felt better, not just physically, but mentally. My mood was better. And it suddenly occurred to me, why doesn't everyone do this? (laughs) Right. Um, But what I quickly learned um, when I started looking into the epidemiology and um, the number of people in the U.S. in particular who are currently sedentary, who don't get any activity at all, um, that it's a huge, huge public health problem. Um, and, And so there was this interesting disconnect between, oh my gosh, this is so incredible and makes me feel so good. Why isn't everyone doing it? But clearly, everyone's not doing it. And so that really led to me being interested in, well, why would people do this versus why wouldn't they? And and what are the the mental health outcomes that I was experiencing that we actually have data about? Yeah. And I've too have experienced the same thing. I often say to people, I and I and I it's not a joke. I feel like I would need to be on antidepressant medication if I did not exercise regularly because it has that kind of an impact on my mood, my functioning, my clarity. So I'm I'm right there with you question I have is, what is going on in the brain? Why is that the case? Um, That is an excellent question, and we don't completely know the answer, to be honest. It's interesting that you mentioned depression because there's actually outstanding work that shows that physical activity is as successful of a treatment for depression as medication. Mm. Um, So you're not alone in thinking that it it has antidepressant effects. We know a lot about um, the impact, and I've done some of this work too, um, the immediate impact of about a physical activity. So you get get on the treadmill, you, you get your heart rate up for about 30 minutes and what we do is track track people's affect before during and after and you can see that you know most people as they exercise their affect gets better and better 
So we know that that happens. Your question about why it happens is excellent. And, and to be perfectly honest, we don't completely know. So early on, there were ideas about it being this endogenous endorphin release. Um, those have actually, for the most part, been discredited. That at would this be like point. the runner's high. The runner's high. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, it would be great if we could look um, inside the brain and see what neurotransmitters are happening. Um, the problem is that the way that we can look inside the brain, and I do some of this work too, is with neuroimaging. And so we have people lay on a um, board and we slide their head into, a, into an MRI scanner and we look inside their brain. But here's the thing. You have to be perfectly still right. in order for us right. to do that. Um, so we can't have people my, – my dream is to have people on a treadmill and have a scanner somehow attached to their head so that we can uh, um, see what's going on in the brain while people are, are engaging in physical activity. Because we can't do that, we have some guesses. Um, so one of the guesses is that uh, physical activity, both acutely and chronically, so after one bout or after you've been doing it for years, um, affects neurotrophic factors in the brain. Um, and these are factors that um, increase neurogenesis, that um, help the brain actually to, to develop and change and be plastic in response to the environment. And we know that physical activity releases these neurotrophic factors um, in muscle, for sure. Um, our guess is that that's probably happening in the brain as well. Um, but again, exactly why it happens, we're not certain. What we do know is that it doesn't happen for everybody. So mm. some people like you and me, we feel great right. after we go out for a run. Some people don't get that. They, really? they simply don't feel a whole lot better. Um, in all of our studies where we put people on a treadmill and look at affect, I said most people increase, but not everybody. Mm. There's some people who stay flat or even feel a little worse afterwards. And, and in that study, particular study, was that people of all different kind of sizes, shapes? Because I could imagine if you haven't ever worked out and you first work out, you're like, that was painful and I hated it. <laughs> you know, why would I do that again? Yes. But, so, but I'm assuming that it was actually an across section of people. Why'd you look at me? <laughs> well, no, I just looked at you because I felt like I was hogging the conversation already. But I, I, no, Angela and I do work out together sometimes. He has, he has much younger children than I do right now, and so I empathize. Um, yeah, po post childbirth is is a tough workout time. That's for sure for all involved. Um, Actually, we've done it in both groups. So we've done it in um, people who are not currently active. We've done the same study in people who are currently active. And you see the same variability. Now, you make an excellent point that people who aren't currently active, on average, they feel worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. They, um, you know, it, it can be painful to the joints if you haven't done this, especially, you know, if you're overweight. Um, and, and for our older participants, certainly when they first start, things are a little creaky. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely the case, and this has been shown in, in, in our work, in uh, um, Patty Ekakakis' work. He's done a lot of, of exploration. Um, he's in Illinois. He's done a lot of exploration of factors that affect what's called the affective response mm -hmm. um, to exercise. And training is a huge one. So trained people get a lot more of a mood benefit than untrained people. There's no doubt. But even among trained and untrained people, there are some people who feel really great and there are some people who don't get as much benefit. Some of our work has shown that part of that is genetic. So we've shown um, that if we look at a particular uh, a genetic um, uh, variable, it's, it's the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, single nucleotide polymorphism. Based on which allele of that gene you have, your affective response is slightly different. Now, I should mention it's not a huge effect, right? It's, it's, it's a very small effect. It's just one gene. 
But what it suggests is that there's some underlying biology that determines how we're going to respond affectively to physical activity. That's super interesting. I have an experience whenever I go running that like these ideas come to me. I feel super creative. Mm -hmm. I feel like my mind is open and like I can see things in a different way. I mean, my wife and I have a joke. It's not really a joke though. Like every time I come back from running, I'm like, honey. So like I got this idea. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, really? Um, She's like, shower first. (laughs) (laughs) Are, have, have there, is there any studies relative to that? I've heard other people speak of that before that on one level, there's kind of like the emotional um, feeling better and that high, Mm -hmm. but also a certain kind of mental clarity that comes from uh, aerobic exercise particularly? It's almost, um, I've also heard it described as an expansiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so so yes, definitely anecdotally that is the case. Um, uh, you know, I myself have come up with grant ideas on runs <laughs> before, um, and I know lots of other people like that. In terms of the um, scientific evidence for it, there's less there's less on that. I think because the the linkage between that expansiveness, that creativity, that's harder to make in terms of mental health. Um, I, I think for those of us who experience it, we can see the link um, to mental health pretty clearly. Um, but I would agree with you. I think it would be really fascinating to look at something like creativity or um, you know ability to generate new ideas um, after after physical activity. It really is a limiting factor, though, to not be able to look at the brain while this is happening. It is. Like you said earlier, because we probably could see a lot of different things that were going on inside the brain if we could actually measure it while we were being active. Well, and and, um, the... The idea about being expansive and being creative just uh, led me to think about some of the work that's gone on with kids in physical activity. Um, and again, we don't know what's happening during physical activity, but for example, schools that incorporate physical activity into the day, um, kids tend to do better academically if they're active. Um, and the, the data are most striking in terms of math. Um, so kids who are physically active right before, you know, math exams or during the, the same day as math exams tend to do better than kids who aren't active. So there's something going on that's that's relevant to, to brain function um, that, that we just don't have a strong handle on. And, and I should mention, you know, um, I, my exercise physiology friends who are sort of less interested in the brain but more interested in, in physiology, yeah. um, part of what they talk about is, look, when you're physically active, your cardiovascular fitness is improving. Your heart's beating faster. More blood is being pumped. And, and what makes your brain work? Well, it's blood. <laughs> um, you know, getting glucose to the brain in, in a, a more efficient and maybe even a faster way um, so that it's transitioning faster. So it could just be that. It could be that because we're moving oxygenation blood through the system um, faster than we would if we were sitting on the couch, um, that could certainly influence brain function in many ways, whether it's arithmetic ability or, or creativity. So not everybody gets increased clarity, increased emotional yes. uh, satisfaction, but am I correct in guessing most do? Most do, yes. And so what are the, what are the you know, because I know you've studied what are the motivating factors mm-hmm. that actually get people to, to do this? There's a lot of, I mean, I could come up with a million excuses because I have them for myself mm-hmm. of why I, I want to sleep more, I can't do this, I'm too busy, I don't do well in the afternoons, all this stuff. What makes people want to exercise? What are the, what's the difference between the people who will do it and the people who won't? So uh, I'll walk you through sort of the, uh, a very fast timeline of, of our thinking on this. So the initial public health attitude was 
well, people just don't know exercise is good for them. Hmm. And if we just tell them it's good for them, then they'll, they'll do, it. do it, right? Mm-hmm. And and as I've learned as a health psychologist, if that were true, I'd be out of business, right? right. Because right. that's pretty much not true for anything. And people, and people <laughs> wouldn't overeat or smoke exactly, or drink. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, so we learned pretty quickly that just educating people was not effective. Um, our, our second line of defense was to um, look to social cognitive models of motivation. And we know that, for example, if I feel confident in my ability to do something, I'm more likely to do it. If I have positive attitudes about it, I'm more likely to do it. If my intentions to do something are high, I'm more likely to do it. So we developed these interventions that said, okay, we need to just increase people's confidence in their abilities. We need to increase their positive attitudes. We need to um, make sure they come out with uh, positive intentions to engage in the behavior, and, and that'll do it. Right. And, and that got us a little farther. <laughs> um, there's if you look across exercise studies and actually studies of any health behavior, um, intentions accounts for maybe 20 percent of the variance, maybe 30 percent if you're real lucky. Um, but I'm sure we've all heard the, the the edict that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. And, and that's true with health behavior, too. So that's not the whole story. Um, we can have lots of good intentions, but like you said, the bed feels really warm in the morning. Right. <laughs> um, so what we're thinking about now, and this is um, sort of a very new perspective, is that there's a difference between initiation and maintenance, right? So we tend to be very good at getting people to initiate, right? So we can educate them, increase their confidence and their attitudes and their intentions, and they'll start. But there's this magical period long about mm, four to six months in where they just drop off, right? So in thinking about this, we've been thinking, well, you know, maybe what we're teaching people to do, I mean, it's very cognitively taxing to every time think about what are my intentions and I have to do this and then I have to do this. And and, and that's hard. And, and over time when you have to keep doing that, it, it takes too much effort and people just give up. What we're thinking now is we need to transition people from intentions to engage to maintenance of the behavior. And how do we do that? Some of our ideas recently are we need to shift over from this highly cognitively taxing attitudes, you know, intentions, all those linkages, and think more about um, what does the behavior mean to you? What what value does it have to you? Does it serve some purpose um, in your life? It, does it um, serve an identity that you have for yourself? So one of the things we know is that um, in one study we're doing right now where it's a supervised exercise program, we ask, um, and this is all women in this study, we ask women at the beginning to tell us about their exercise identity. So do you think of yourself as an exerciser? Is exercise something that's important to you? And, and I'll tell you at the beginning, that's not their conceptualization, right? Because they don't exercise right now. And so they, they say, no, not really. It's not something that's important to me. And over the course of exercise, and keep in mind, we're doing nothing but making them exercise on a treadmill, treadmill four times a week. All of a sudden, they start developing this identity. It becomes, no, I, I'm an exerciser. And we looked at, after our exercise intervention ended, what happened six months afterwards. Mm. And the women who were more likely to say, I'm an exerciser, those were the women who kept exercising. Interesting. And so we're thinking that there's something about we need to make maintenance easier. We need to give people um, a reason to do this that's not taxing or hard. Um, 
I talk often about, you know, I travel a lot. And when I travel, I put my running shoes in my bag. I put my, you know, iPod shuffle in my bag. If it's going to rain, you know, I put a hat in a rain. And that's just what I do. That's just who I am. I don't have to think about it. It's not particularly taxing. It's just part of me. And so if we can get people to incorporate the behavior into their identity. Makes a lot of sense. Then it becomes something you don't have to think about so And that, that's a wellness approach. Yes. When you think about it versus you should do this mm-hmm. because if you don't or it's good for you. So therefore, it's mm-hmm. more about, you know, exactly what you're saying, the identity piece of it mm-hmm. and how that just becomes part of who who you are. And, you and certainly one one piece of the identity part is thinking about. Um, so Michelle Seeger has done some really nice work looking at why people exercise. And what she did was track people over time. And it turned out that the people who said they exercised for the health benefits, like the long term, I won't have a heart attack, I won't get cancer. Um, they were less likely to maintain than people who said it makes me happy. Yeah. It's for quality of life. It's part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's more good evidence that we need to stop maybe focusing so much on these really long-term goals that are probabilistic anyway, right? Like right. maybe you'll get cancer, maybe you won't. Right, but <laughs> right, right. Um, but if, if we can think about proximal goals and, you know, I'm doing this today because it's important for my identity or, you know, I, I love my grandchildren and I want to be there and be able to lift them or whatever it is that's right now mm. important to you, mm. I think that's, that's less difficult um, in terms of motivation than thinking about those far off goals. Very interesting. So what are you working on right now? What what are the projects you're working on at the university? I mean, there's a lot I know. You're yeah. teaching. And <laughs> but any, any projects that are going on right now that you're really excited about? Yeah. So the one I just mentioned where we look at um, changes in identity, um, actually the, the overall goal of that study um, is to look at the physiological changes that happen as we exercise that are linked to cancer prevention. So we know that um, there are changes in our genetics um, that are called uh, epigenetic changes. So, so the DNA stays the same, the sequence stays the same, but the way that particular genes are expressed can change. And those changes can happen for a lot of reasons. Smoking can do this. Exposure to environmental toxins can do this. Um, but we also know that there's things that can change it in a positive way. So um, we've probably read about green tea and why it's good for you. Well, turns out green tea is is good because it causes some positive epigenetic changes. We had preliminary data that physical activity might do that too, um, but it wasn't a, a really well-controlled study. So now we're doing a very controlled study where, as I said, we bring people into the lab, we watch them exercise, they exercise at a prescribed intensity and duration, and we're looking to see how much exercise do you need um, to get those cancer prevention benefits. And then you know, once we uh, finish the formal part of the study, if people continue exercising, what happens to their epigenetics? If they stop, what happens? And I think that that'll give us a lot of information. I, I think right now the information that we tend to get from the media is a little confusing, right? So, so is it just lifestyle activity? All I have to do is walk around the block and carry my laundry basket up the stairs and that's physically active? Or is it high-intensity interval training, which we hear a lot about? Um, and, and the answer is we don't know, really. Um, so I think more data to help us understand what are the benefits that are accrued from different levels of mm-hmm. physical activity are really important. But mm-hmm. but the great thing about this study design is it allows us to explore all of these psychological things, like what happens to affective response if we train people. 
we initially thought, oh, well, as people get more trained, then they're going to have a better affective response. I mean, that's what the data would suggest. Mm. Actually, that doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> um, so it seems like if you had a good affective response at the beginning, you do at the end too. If mm. it wasn't so great at the beginning, it's not so great at the end. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, what that suggests is that it's not necessarily that training is the cause of affective response. It might just be that the people who like to be trained are also the people who get a nice affective response from physical activity. So the, we might have had the causation the wrong way on that one. Um, we were able to look at identity and a host of other things. Um, the other project we're really excited about is looking at the effect of physical activity on neurocognitive function among elderly adults. Cool. So this is really cool because we take adults in the community who are age 60 and up who are not currently active. And again, we do a supervised exercise training regimen. And we do actually an fMRI scan where we have them do a cognitive task. And luckily, we can actually watch people do cognitive tasks in the scanner because you can be still and do those. Um, we look to see which parts of the brain are active, um, how they're connecting to each other. And then after um, 16 weeks of training, we do that same scan again so that we can actually see in the brain what's changing. Um, What's really cool about this is that there's lots of data to suggest that physical activity really helps older adults with memory. And memory is great, but it's not necessarily function, right? So ultimately, what we'd all like for all of us is to be able to function better <laughs> the older that we get. Um, and so if we can link those neurocognitive changes to things like social function, emotional function, and even financial function, we know that sometimes um, older adults are taken advantage of financially. So if they're making better connections in their brains and are better able to deal with financial situations, that all adds up to quality of life. And so we're really interested in expanding this notion of physical activity is good for the brain because it's good for memory to, but is it good for the brain also in terms of quality of life, which is what our outcomes are really about in that study. And it kind of seems like the, the whole focus kind of going back to when you're talking about children and math and how they do mm -hmm. better if they're active. And, and then I think about, I was just kind of thinking about, well, you know, people who play sports tend to exercise a lot, right? But many times they're exercising because of the sport, mm -hmm. like because of the competition, because of the payoff with the team, all, all of these other benefits, which are great. But then the sport ends and you'll see people who were even professional athletes and I think just kind of stop and they're like, you know, they, they, fall, they, apart. they fall apart mm -hmm. and their their bodies tend to fall apart and they're not they're no longer having to maintenance. So it's kind of interesting. What I'm getting from what you're saying is that it's really more about the identity of being an active person mm -hmm. and 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 having movement in a regular basis whatever that might be not so much how many intervals can you do how far can you run yep. if that's part of it that's great but just even this idea of like someone might may or may not see themselves as, a, as an exerciser but most people want to see themselves as an active person who moves and not you know sedentary right so i was just kind of thinking about that and thinking about how important it is really from an early age mm -hmm. to educate and keep the bodies moving yeah kids seem to do it pretty naturally they run around a lot and they do a lot of different things but then oh, they get into man, school not my kids really <laughs> well my boys my boys go into school and they're just so frustrated because they have to sit there yeah and they hate it and they're just like i just want to move my body and you know they have a hyperactive dad i completely relate like i need to move around in order to have my mind work and so it's uh you know, and schools aren't generally great at that. No, it's kind of like they're sitting. terrible. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know. and and I think you know one thing that you brought up, which is 
you know, oftentimes we also have this idea about what physical activity looks like. Mm. And like you said, it's it's about moving, mm. right? And so if it's running that gets me going and swimming that gets you going and biking that gets you going, that that's all great. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think um, another another message that we tend to get, especially with older adults, this kind of drives me crazy, is the only thing they're ever recommended to do is walk. Right, right. And, and that's fine if that's what you like. Sure. But first of all, it doesn't get the heart rate up right. for most of us, unless right. you're hiking on the trails around here and, and going uphill. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have older adults right now doing high-intensity interval training, and they love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's more interesting, right, yeah. than just – because our comparison condition is the, the typical sort of walking um, intervention. And I think making physical activity fun mm-hmm. is critical. Mm-hmm. And if walking around the block is not fun to you, find something that's fun because mm-hmm. that's what what it's about. It's about being intrinsically motivated to do it because you enjoy it and it's fun and it makes you feel good, right. not because it's this prescription right. that somebody told you. Right. On cold mornings before it's light out and I go to the gym, part of the reason why I'm willing to go to the gym beyond the benefits that I, you know, I know it's good for me. I know I feel better. But even that's really difficult before the first cup of coffee. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, <laughs> okay, so I'd really rather be sleeping. But a big, big draw of that is the social interaction mm-hmm. of the people that I know at the gym and the person I train with. And, you know, I so I'm kind of like, oh, you know, I want to see them or or narcissistically they might miss me or, you know, <laughs> like however you do. But it's, it's the social part of that, too. So I kind of hear that feeding into what you're saying. When people have kind of reasons and connection and becomes part of their identity, that those are really important parts to sustaining that over a long period of time. And that's, you know, when we first started seeing this variation in affective response, we were thinking, well, gosh, the people who don't really get a nice affective boost from it, what are, what are we going to do with them? How are mm. we ever going to? And and immediately, you know, we thought, well, then you need something else that's motivating. Mm-hmm. And the social piece mm-hmm. is critical. Mm-hmm. So there's now a lot of work that um, is exploring having people exercise in groups versus alone. And you do get this social responsibility thing that happens, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Some days you don't want to show up, but you show up because people are expecting you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the we know we're social animals, right? So sh- social interaction is in itself rewarding. Mm-hmm. So if that's the rewarding piece for you, Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm very agnostic about what it is that's exciting mm-hmm. about the activity. And mm-hmm. if it's, you know, seeing your friends, mm-hmm. you know, to go for a hike, then that's great. If it's because you love the exertion, that's great too. It's because your dog needs to go out. Yeah. No, that's a good one too. <laughs> what, what, so I'm thinking about a listener now who might be listening and thinking, like, okay, I, I tried this. I tried, I know I want to do it. And I kind of haven't ever sustained it. And, um, any hints, any ideas, like what would be helpful for someone who's sitting there and listening right now saying, God, I would love to exercise, never really followed through with it. I've never really stuck with it. What would you tell them? I think there are a couple of things that I would say. One is one thing that was um, quite instructive, actually, about the seeing that there there were people for whom it wasn't that exciting. To, <laughs> it didn't feel that good. Um, I, I do think the message we get from the media is exercise will make you feel great. So mm. you, you hear about the studies where, you know, it, it works for depression and it does. That's, you know, that's true. So I think then everybody expects it to feel awesome. Mm. And especially when you're first starting, it doesn't feel awesome. Mm. And so you have to find some other reason mm. um, for doing it and also be okay with the fact that, you know what, it's it's not going to feel great at first and that's fine. Right. It, it doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. I mean, obviously you want to make sure you're not injuring yourself, sure. but, um, but barring that, it may not feel good at first, and that's okay. Um, so, so that's one thing that I would um, definitely tell people. 
And then the second thing is to think about what's important to you. When you think about your life and the things that are important to you, that make you who you are, that things that you value, is there any way you can connect those to being active? Um, so my graduate student, Courtney Stevens, just did her dissertation work um, with sedentary women. And part of what she did was to get them to have that focus, to say, what's important to you? And so for some of these women, they were older, they, they would say, you know, I, I want to see my grandkids get married. And that, that's awesome. If that's a value that's important to you and you want to be, you know, independent and active and able to do that, if you can connect that value to being active, then you're not being active just for your health mm. anymore. You're being mm. active for something that's a key piece of who you are and what you value. Mm. So I think finding the piece of exercise that you can link to something that you care about in your life can help you to, to move towards that motivation state. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any tools that can help someone do that? Because I was thinking when you were speaking before about identity, if someone just mm -hmm. does not identify with that, like I'm just someone who doesn't like exercise, how can they potentially make that shift? And I hear you saying like, well, ask yourself, what do you really care about? Mm -hmm. And I, I can still imagine someone sitting there and being like, I mean, I, I want to be healthy, I guess. I, like people feel kind of lost in it and they can't quite get their identity to make that shift. Are there, is there a tool or a line of questioning or a book or something to kind of support them in that? Angela, you are asking the million dollar question because we don't know. We know that getting to that identity state helps people to maintain, but honestly, we don't know how to get people there. We don't know what the intervention is that helps people to transition from that really sort of cognitively laden, I intend to do this and so I'm going to do it, to that I'm doing this because it's who I am. We, we, there's a disconnection. We don't know how to get people from point A to point B. And so that's really where the science is right now, is trying to figure out, you know, we, we looked at if just being active helped people, and it seems like it does. It seems like in some sense, just doing Promote it. Most people. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, I wouldn't say the effect is huge okay. um, or that it's everybody, but that's a piece of it, mm -hmm. right? If you can just force yourself to do it, that helps to get you a little bit there. But but that's not the whole answer. And, and it's really, it's an empirical question. I mean, if we could design the intervention that gets people to incorporate this into, the, into their identity, I mean, it, it, it would be awesome. It would be such a huge step forward in, in terms of the science, but, but we just don't know. I think we have to trigger their fight or flight response. I think we need to put them in really scary situations. <laughs> run, run. <laughs> have them see the benefit that comes from that. I'm just, I'm kidding, obviously. <laughs> anyway. I am prey. I am prey. I right. must run away. Well, but I do, I do want, I, I pray. I do wonder about that. And I realize, that, you know, we're going to have to wrap soon. But I, I, what I do wonder about is this. It's like, because I'm like, I'm not very smart. I just think in really simple people terms, right? So I'm saying anything, you know, there was a time when we had to hunt for our dinner. Mm -hmm. There was a time when we were chased by yep. animals. You know, like I had a feeling, you know, I have bears in my yard right now. And so like when I go to take the trash out and I'm 20 feet from a bear, something happens inside mm -hmm. me that I can't get through television and something else, right? So I feed the bear and I haven't No, I don't do all that. <laughs> but, but what I'm wondering is, is like, have we, has life gotten too easy? Mm -hmm. Is it just like it's too easy for people to sit on their butt, not do something, and... Like maybe they don't even know that they need it and they're simulating adventure and different things like just from the reality that's being fed to them through media and stuff like that. 
like, is there anything to that that maybe like we we have it too easy and therefore we we we're not forced to exercise, so it becomes this kind of luxury thing. And there's gyms. We even have fake sidewalks. Like we walk on these yeah. treadmills that are fake sidewalks. So, I mean, what is there any is there anything to that? So another one of my graduate students, um, she's now actually a postdoc um, in Denver. Um, she'd be great to bring up to talk about this because her work is all about an evolutionary perspective on physical activity that answers some of these exact questions. Mm, so cool. she talks about it as a mismatch between the era in which we evolved, our physiology and our psychology, and our current environment. So our current environment has changed so fast that our evolution as a species is not keeping up. And really, any species, it's, it's an, we're energy misers, right? We want to do the least possible to be successful in terms of survival and reproduction. It turned out that the minimum used to be a lot. <laughs> right, I imagine. <laughs> right? Just like to it, eat and survive. Yeah, huh? it used to be, you know, being active most of the day, um, you know, hunting, gathering. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, of time to sit around the fire, although um, th- there was a lot of that too. Even farming and manual labor. Yes, like, yes. You know. um, and so what's happened is that we're still energy misers, but now we have to do almost nothing to survive and reproduce. And so there's a huge mismatch. Um, so we're not getting the natural kind of um, motivational cues to be active that we're supposed to get. Um, and so that's another huge hurdle to overcome is to think about, you know, how do we get people to be active when frankly, you don't have to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no reason you have to be active in order to be a successful human in modern times. So it's, it's absolutely a question that, you know, lots of people are thinking deeply about. Um, but it's it's a big problem. Hmm. Uh, one other question. I was wondering, have there been any studies on simulating exercise? Like, uh, you know, you're looking into a goggle or, or something where you're like actually pretending to exercise <laughs> um, in order to sort of make that link between how you would see yourself as an active or an exerciser. Like, I'm curious, because we could actually watch the brain then if that was actually yeah. happening. It's like you're watching yourself work out and yeah. like, Wow, and there's some benefits, and now there's some muscles, and it looks pretty good. Like I'm kind of wondering if there's ways to maybe g- use gateway, an avatar. Yeah, yeah, gateway <laughs> people into exercising through virtual reality. When there's that paper rubber hand thing, right? The 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 I don't remember the exact study, but there's a study where they had like the paper hand cutout, or it's like a rubber hand cutout on your own hand, and someone's caressing it, and they only end up caressing the rubber hand, and you can your brain literally your brain feels it yeah. feels it yeah. Uh, you know, I think you guys should play with mirror neurons. That's what I'm basically yeah. trying to say. <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting because thinking about that and you asked the question, how do we change identity? But maybe that's a great way to try. Maybe showing people a, a version of their ideal selves that's a really fit exerciser um, or at least a more fit version of themselves. And technology exists to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can take somebody who might say, gosh, I'm 300 pounds and I really want to be 200 pounds. Yeah. I wonder what I would look like doing there, what I would have to do in order to do it. I mean, I just kind of wonder if envisioning it. For yeah, people. we've certainly morphed pictures um, in, in other kinds of studies to look at body shape and things like that. Um, but but I could imagine using some kind of morphing technology on people to create an avatar that was, you know, you as an exerciser. So I also think exercising and weight loss, it's such a um, double edged sword because I think a lot of people only say, well, I'm going to exercise in order to lose weight. Right. And like, it's a long road to hoe, mm-hmm. you know, like. 
it's you can do that and you you might but you're not necessarily going to get the like next day benefit and even if you do all that you still have to eat different Mm -hmm. because you're going to eat more when you're actually i mean this is all personal experience so you know there has to be something more than just that like you have to have some benefit from it beyond just one thing i would imagine so can there please just be a vr headset for danny so that he can (laughs) so that he can exercise twice a day once for real in the morning and And once at night yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) and you're absolutely right physiologically exercise is not a great way to lose weight it's a great way to maintain, mm-hmm. um, but but you're not going to lose weight unless you change your diet. It just it doesn't work, and so it's I just do, science I do there, right? Think, like oh, it's yeah. like calorie in, yes, burnt. It's yes. just simple stuff. Yeah, and I, you know Hard. I think people do get frustrated because yeah. they say you know I want to exercise to lose weight, but that that it takes a really long time, right? right. Um, and it's not the best way, and you also have to change your diet. So again, you know, looking at those really long term goals is not going to be the most effective. Thinking about how are you going to feel about yourself at the end of the day? Yeah, if you exercise versus you don't. Um, that that's what might be more beneficial to focus on. I keep talking about my students, but they all do great work. Um, another one of my students must did, have great did, teachers. did um, daily diaries where people at the end of the day reported whether they exercised that day whether they had planned to and then what the, how they felt about themselves and how their affect was. And on a day they exercised, they were happier, they felt better. But interestingly enough, they felt better about themselves. So they, were, they felt more proud of themselves. Um, they felt like they were a better person. I mean, that, that's pretty reinforcing. That's a big to, deal. Yeah, yeah. To, at the end of the day, think, wow, I'm, I'm a good person. And Absolutely. if you link that to your physical activity, those people were more likely to maintain. Mm-hmm. So, so if we can get those sort of immediate benefits rather than the ones that may or may not come or that are really difficult, mm. I think that's going to help. Thank you so much for taking the time to come in here of today. Of course. Really Thanks appreciate it. Me. Yeah, will you come again? Sometime? Of course. All right, awesome. Because next time you come in, we're going to talk about sex. Great. That's a little teaser for My everybody. My second favorite topic. There we go. <laughs> there we go. I'm not necessarily mutually exclusive. I, I would imagine there's interlinking between all of these types of things. But anyway, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Angela, any parting shots before we go? Uh, just thank you so much, Angela. It was such a pleasure having you here. I hope you'll come back. Great. All right, yeah. See you next time. Yeah.